0: Revelation chapter 10 is where we'll be this morning. If you want to turn there in your copy of the word of the Lord. The Christian life this side of heaven is in many ways a bittersweet reality. We have the promise of God's provision, but at the same time we have the promise of persecution as well. The Lord Jesus himself said, in this life you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. We know we have a home with Christ, but at the same time the scriptures teach us that we are aliens and strangers in this world. We're called to proclaim the riches of God to those who repent, but also we're called to proclaim the wrath of God to those who reject Him. A bittersweet reality that we're going to talk about this morning. The title of today's message is The Bitter and the Sweet. And you see in this passage a perfect blending and combination of these two things for the lives of believers. It begins there in the opening verses, verses 1-7, through 7, talking about the never-failing promises of God's Word. And we come back to this time and time again because if you can read the Bible and don't see that the God of the universe is a God who makes immense promises to His people, then you've not read enough of the Scripture. Our God is a God who makes promises that He comes through on 100% of the time. He is the only one who can say that because He is the only one with the ability to speak a word and to bring it to pass. I can make many promises, but I often have failed in keeping those because I don't have the power to do so or sometimes the mind to remember. But the Lord is not like that at all. We see the never-failing promises of God here demonstrated through this mighty angel that he shows us in verse 1. John says, Then I saw another mighty angel. That word another in the Greek means another of the same kind. There have been some who have interpreted this passage as this, this angel is the Lord Jesus himself. I don't think that's correct because Here it means another of the same kind. There have been several mighty angels already and several more to come. There are over 60 references to angels in the book of Revelation. Probably more than any other book in the Bible, this book talks about angels. Angels serve as the messengers of God, but they also serve as the agents for bringing about the actions of God in this book. You see them at each of the removals of the seals that we looked at several weeks ago, those seven seals on the scroll that the Lord Jesus Christ took from the right hand of God. You see the angels at work in in the working of those things. We saw them last week as these seven trumpets began to blow, and they were the agents that God used to bring about His judgments and His wrath on the world. This mighty messenger here is one who very much demonstrates the way that we see God throughout the Old Testament. Look at the description of him here. He says, He saw this mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. His face was like the sun, and his legs were like pillars of fire. And in his hand he had a little scroll. That. Description won't mean a lot to you until you go back to the Old Testament descriptions of God, specifically when God led his people out of Egypt. And you remember they spent that 40 years in the wilderness because of their lack of faith and disobedience to God and not entering right into the promised land. They spent that 40 years in the wilderness. And through a great part of that time, the Lord led them with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night you remember that and that's the picture here wrapped in a cloud his legs like pillars of fire we see the rainbow just like we saw in revelation chapter 5 the rainbow was encircling the throne of god here we see the rainbow again the rainbow a reminder of god's covenant promises But he promised Noah, the sign was a promise that God would never flood the earth again. He would never destroy the world in that way again. Though Revelation teaches us that one day he will do do so not with water but with fire. And we see here his face shining like the sun a reminder of what it was like when Moses came down from Mount Sinai bearing the Ten Commandments and his face was shining with the glory of Almighty God. So much so that the, that the people of Israel ordered him and commanded him and said, please don't look upon us. Put a veil over your face because we can't stand to see the glory of God shining so brightly from you. The glory of God shining in the face of this angel like the morning midday sun he had a little scroll open in his hand. And we're not sure if this scroll, I can't tell you for sure, if this scroll is the same scroll that was referred to in the chapters previous to this one. It's a little unclear whether this is the same scroll or not. But we do know this, whenever we see a scroll in Revelation or even in the Old Testament... It's so often representative of the word of God that God has written down his promises and plan for his people and here this angel comes bearing the scroll of God. Comes bearing the scroll of God in one hand and with his other hand he has lifted to the heavens proclaiming praise toward God. And this is what John sees as the Lord is unveiling these things to him. As this Mighty Messenger begins to speak. John notices that he is standing with his feet, one on the sea and one on the land. Well, what is that all about? It's a picture of God's authority. In the Scriptures, whenever you see something being under someone's feet, it represents authority over that thing or over that person. In the Old Testament times, the kings, when they would go to war, if they conquered a nation, they would take those that they had conquered and they would often put their feet upon the necks of their conquered enemies. It was a symbol of their authority over that person, over their life. And now I have the authority to let you live or to kill you on the spot. Many times in the scripture it talks about uh, that the, the earth is the footstool of the Lord. And that means that he rests his feet upon the earth as sign of his authority over all creation. And this angel is demonstrating that both by standing on the sea and on the land, the fullness of God's creation being under his feet and his authority. As this angel begins to cry out and to speak, John says that these seven thunders sounded. He said he calls out with a loud voice. He called out, when he called out, the seven thunders sounded kind of like an echo of this angel's voice or these seven thunders. They sounded. And then John says something very interesting. He says, I was about to write down what they said. Which was John's mission, you remember back in chapter 1, and once or twice since then, the Lord has said to John, write these things down. Your job here as you're having these visions is not just to revel in these things, not just to be amazed by these things, but John's role was one of writing down these visions for us. That what was revealed to John was meant to encourage the church, to bring us, Hope. That's why the name of this series we've been walking through is This Present Hope. Many people look at the book of Revelation and see a bunch of hopelessness, but it was meant to give the church hope. And so this messenger begins to speak. The seven thunders begin to sound. I'm not really exactly sure what these seven thunders are. I know the the number seven always represents the number of God, the number of completeness and perfection. God's holiness and righteousness is summed up in that number. And so we get that idea here, the idea of thunder again in the Old Testament. When God spoke, his voice was often like thunder. Every once in a while it came as a still, small voice like he did with Elijah, but many times it was a thunderous voice. That's why when Moses went up to Mount Sinai, the voice of the Lord thundered upon the mountains, and the people were so fearful that they fled back, no one would even dare touch the foot of the mountain lest they should die. That was the power and the glory of God. And so whatever these seven thunders are, they speak for God. He is speaking through these. But the interesting thing is that when John hears what they are saying, he's about to write these things down. But then a the voice from heaven says, don't do it. Seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. It's the only time in the book of Revelation that John is told to keep anything to himself. Now this happens in the Old Testament a lot. The book of Daniel, there's a couple of different times where Daniel's told, don't write this down. He's given a vision and told, don't, this is to be kept between you and me, is kind of what God is saying. This is, this is a, a mystery that's not to be revealed. The Apostle Paul speaks about a vision that he had in which the Lord told him to seal it up, to not proclaim it to the churches. You read books about this particular passage and there's all kinds of ideas about what were the seven thunders saying, all kinds of speculations about what the message might have been and the content of it. Here's what I'm here to tell you today. We don't know what they said for a reason. When God wants to reveal truth to His people, He does that. And when He chooses to keep something a secret, it's for our own good. It's like if you had much time raising kids and I'm just still new to that whole process but every once in a while one of my daughters will ask me a question that they're not really ready to hear the answer for just yet you ever had one of those okay they're just one of those questions and you go hmm I don't know whether I should answer this or not and sometimes it's fully appropriate to withhold that information why for their good age appropriateness is still important even in a world where it's not practiced a lot of the time there is an age appropriateness to information we withhold information from our children not because we hate them not because we want to do them harm but because we want to protect them and they're not ready for that which is the answer and that's what i think is going on here whatever was spoken by these seven thunders we aren't ready to hear it just yet now one day we will one day in the fullness of time, we will know what this message is, but for now it's hidden from us for our own good. God is not keeping something from us to harm us, but to protect us. So the seven thunders speak that which they say is sealed up, but then something else is revealed that's even greater, I believe. God is revealing something that is Long been looked for, and we see it there in verses six and seven. This angel standing on the sea and the land, he swore. He raises his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the day of the uh, days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, which are yet to come. Next week we'll get to that. The mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants the prophets okay what does that mean the word mystery is a technical term in the new testament that means a truth that was once hidden that has now been unveiled for the church in the old testament days In the days of Daniel, on Wednesday nights we've been talking about this a little bit, that for Daniel, much was revealed to Daniel, but there were many things for the prophet Daniel and for all of the other prophets in the Old Testament days. Much was revealed to them, but there was also much that was kept secret from them. There was much revealed about the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Promised One who was to come into the world and rescue God's people. There was much revealed about this Messiah in the Old Testament days, through the Old Testament. So why was it when Jesus came on the scene, the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world, the promised Messiah, when He came, no one hardly recognized Him? Just very few, just a handful actually got it. Why was that? Why did the scribes and the Pharisees who knew the Old Testament better than any of us in the room, probably our combined knowledge wouldn't have rivaled their knowledge of the Old Testament. And yet when Jesus came, the Son of God in the flesh, the long-awaited Messiah was standing before them. Rather than praising Him, trusting in Him, and following after Him, they crucified Him. It's because there was still a mystery That was yet to be revealed to the church, to those who would trust in Christ by faith and proclaim this gospel. But John speaks here of the fullness of that mystery being made known. What is that mystery? Look with me for a moment at Ephesians chapter 1. It will be on the screen here for you and it's also there in your outline. The Apostle Paul writes of this same mystery in him. We have redemption through his blood. In Jesus Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us, to the church, the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. If you if you're taking notes this morning, you might underline two phrases there on your outline in that verse. The first one is the mystery of his will. A mystery is not something that God intends to keep secret forever. It's actually a truth that God has revealed to the church, to those who've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. He says, and the mystery of his will is this, underline this next phrase, to unite all things in him. If you wonder what the plan and purpose of God is for all creation, it's summed up in that phrase. In the Christian church today in America, the motto that we often put out there is God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Now, I think we're only telling half the truth there. I'm going to talk about that before we end today. But what is God's plan? God's plan is this, to unite all things in Christ. Everything the book of Colossians says was made by Him, through Him, and for Him. And when sin entered into the world, we wrecked it. But God is going to redeem it. We chose sin over obedience to God, but there's coming a day when God is going to restore what sin broke. What our rebellion against God destroyed is going to be renewed and the focus will be upon Him, upon Christ, in whom all things will be united. Mystery made known. Second point on your outline. What do we do with these things? We see the necessary proclamation of God's Word. Let's skip all the way down to verse 11, and we'll start there, and then we'll work our way backward. And John was told, he said, this angel told him, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. And notice he doesn't say, you might prophesy. Well, John, if you've got nothing better to do, why don't you spend some time telling people, about God's plan for all creation and in Jesus Christ, you know, at all. He wasn't, it's just something, you know, if you, if you take it up as a hobby or, you know, a secondary occupation, when you're not doing anything better, you can do this. No, he says, you must. Church, would you hear that word today? This so it's not just a word for the Apostle John in the first century. This is a word for the church today. You must proclaim the excellencies of your God. You must proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. You must, why must you do it? Because that's the plan and purpose of God. When you proclaim the gospel, you are taking part in the eternal plan of Almighty God. And I would love to tell you there's a plan B. Because as the church, more often than not, we're messing this thing up. We come into our church buildings and we soak up the Word of God like sponges. And we soak it up and we go out into this world and we don't wring it out on others. We just keep it soaked up. But by the end of the week, what happens? We're dry. We're dry and we're weary and so we come back into the church again and we hope to soak it up once again and we get all filled up and we go into this world and we don't wring ourselves out on a lost and dying world. We just dry out throughout the week and so we come back again and we soak it up and this continual process is happening in our churches that we're just these spiritual sponges and that's never what we were intended to be. I'll tell you how it's supposed to work. Look at the next point on your outline there. The idea is this, that we invest, ingest to invest. Look what the angel told him. He went and takes the scroll from the hand of this mighty angel. It's just an amazing moment if you think about it. And then the angel said to him, take this scroll and stick it in your back pocket, John, because you might need that one day. John, take this scroll and I want you to read it every day. It'll be a real encouragement to you. John, I want you to take this scroll and I want you to go home and I want you to hide it in the safest place that you have because this thing is really precious. He doesn't say that, does he? What does he say? Eat it. That's just weird, right? Eat it? Like, really? All this going on in this majestic picture, this mighty messenger, the mystery of God being made known. And John is going up and taking the scroll, and then the angel says, eat it. What's that all about? You go to Ezekiel chapter 2, and you see what it's all about. When the prophet Ezekiel was called by God to go and proclaim the majesty and the mystery of God to the people of his day, the same thing happened. The Lord gave him a small scroll and gave him the same command, eat it. Why? What's this all about? Folks, we need to ingest the Word of God so that we can invest the Word of God in others. Far too often, we are what James talks about, we are hearers of the Word, but we're not doers of it. And I'm not just talking about our acts of obedience I'm talking about the fact that the Word of God time and time again calls us to be proclaimers of this Word to a lost and dying world. And we come into our churches, these spiritual sponges, and we soak it up, and then we go out into the world, and we don't wring ourselves out on the world. And we go to our Bible studies, and we get filled up, and then we, we come some days, and we go, you know what, I didn't really get much out of that. That didn't really feed me. And we blame others for that, not realizing that, that we ought to be diving into the word of God ourselves not just so that we can get filled up but so that we can wring it out on a lost and dying world. We ingest the word of God not to fill our bellies. Remember after the feeding of the 5,000? Jesus fed the people with a little boy's lunch. And then Jesus got in a boat and left and went across the Sea of Galilee. And the crowd that had been fed was so amazed, they thought, man, we got to find that dude again. And they went around the Sea of Galilee, walked all the distance around the Sea of Galilee, and finally found Jesus on the other side, on the other shore the next day. And Jesus said of those folks, here's my paraphrase, they didn't come after me because they wanted me. They came after me because they got their bellies full. Church, let's be careful. Let's be careful that we're not just like those same folks who on that day, when Jesus spoke a hard word to them in that day, it says, and after that, many departed from him and no longer followed him to the point where he looked at the 12 disciples and said, will you leave as well? And then Peter gave that great confession. Where else could we go? You alone have the words of life. Church, let's not be among those who come to this place, come before the Lord just to get our bellies full. Because the reality is there's so much of that we have more Bible study materials than any generation has ever had and yet we find ourselves more biblically illiterate than the generations that have gone before us. Why is that? I don't think it's because we don't have good Sunday school classes. I don't, I don't think it's because we don't have enough DVD series. I don't think it's because we don't have pastors who are proclaiming the word. I think it's because we are spiritually bloated. When you consume food, it is not meant to remain in your body forever. I don't want to get graphic here, but just stay with me. If you consume food and something is not coming out of your body eventually, there is a problem. I don't want to get too graphic with that. I just want you to understand the physical reality matches the spiritual. If you come in and you feast upon the Word of God week in and week out and nothing ever comes out of you into the lives of others, you're missing the point. We are not saved to sit and stew in this sanctuary. We are saved to go out of this place and to proclaim the Word of God to those who are lost and dying. This is not the purpose of our Christianity This is merely the holy huddle that prepares us for the game that's out there. But we come and we get filled up week after week after week and we live spiritually bloated lives because we forget that we're meant to ingest this word for the purpose of investing this word in the lives of others. To pour yourself out for a lost and dying world next time you're in a Sunday school class I want you to think about as you sit there how will I proclaim this word the key question we ask in our Bible study classes is what does this have to do with me how is this going to make me a better parent how is this going to fulfill my needs let me just tell you the first word of Rick Warren's famous book is this it's not about you It's about what Christ wants to do through you into the lives of others. That he has called us as proclaimers of his word, a holy occupation. And you may shrink back in fear from that and go, whoa, that's just a little bit too much for me. Isn't that the pastor's job? Isn't that my my deacon's job, my Sunday school teacher's job? No. No. If you've been saved by Jesus Christ, you were not saved to sit and to stew in the sanctuary. You were saved to proclaim God daily. And you can do that when you're feasting upon the riches of His Word. It will be the overflow of your heart. Just a couple last words here as we wrap this up. Folks, we need to learn how to tell the bitter and the sweet. Like I said, the the motto of the American church today is something along the lines of God loves you and has an amazing plan for your life. My biggest problem with that statement is that it's so self-centered. It's so man-centered. God loves you and has a great plan for your life. But even if we take that as a good biblical truth, which I kind of shudder at, but even if we take that as a good biblical truth, it's only half the truth. There's another half to that truth as well. You see, we love the sweetness of God's word. We love the promises, I'll never leave you or forsake you. We love the promises of all the riches of God's glory found in Jesus Christ for us. We love the promise that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We love these promises of God. But what about the words of God's wrath? I've joked with our worship team the last little bit. It's really, really hard to find any song out there that celebrates the wrath of God. And if you find one, please come and show it to me. I would love for us to sing it. I, 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 it's just you can't find one out there. A song that truly celebrates a God who is perfect in His judgment, that has every right to judge this world and to pour out the fullness of His wrath because we have destroyed it with our sin. Folks, we need to learn how to tell the bitter and the sweet. Because I'm going to tell you this, as long as our only motto is God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, In large part, the world isn't listening. It's oftentimes not until you hear the bad news, the bitter news that goes with that word, that you will begin to seek the Lord. Because the bitter word is, for those who choose not to trust in Christ, there is a place called hell. That in our rebellion against God, we will spend eternity there, separated from God, in utter torment. Jesus talked more about hell than he did about heaven. Hell is not some mythical place. Hell is not some symbolic gesture. Hell is a real place that was made for the devil and his angels, and we can choose to go there in our rebellion against God if we will not trust in Christ. But we're not speaking those words. We're just giving God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And the world is not being told that there is a wrath to avoid. There is a hell to shun just as much as there is a heaven to gain. And we gloss over sin. We minimize it. See, as long as we're minimizing sin as the church of the living God, as long as we continue to minimize sin... And the world has no reason to take hell seriously. If sin is just some little problem and just no big deal, you know, we'll just wipe that out and go on. No, no big thing, just a little smudge on our character. No big deal. But if sin means that we are rebels against a holy God, if sin really means that He had to send His one and only perfect Son into the world. If sin means that the cross was God's way of dealing, of covering, of redeeming. And it gets serious, doesn't it? As long as we minimize the effects of sin, it looks like God's just exaggerating. If you begin to look in the pages of His Word and see yourself as a sin-soaked wretch, So what do we do with these things? 2 Peter 3.9 It says the Lord is not slow in fulfilling His promises as some understand slowness but He is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish but that all should reach repentance. Guess who the you is in the middle of that verse? He's patient with you, lost people, right? This wasn't written to lost people. He's patient with you, stubborn people, right? Because it's the stubborn that need patience, right? No, this wasn't written to stubborn people. He's patient with you, church. The Lord is being patient with you. But it's just as John saw in Revelation 10, there's going to come a day when his delay will end Become come a day when the mercies of God will run out. And I think that day is going to be a day of huge regret for 99% of the American church as we sit in our sanctuaries and we soak up the Word of God and we don't do anything with it in the lives of those who are lost and dying in this world. And if you think that I'm just talking and preaching at you, you need to understand that I'm preaching this word to myself as much as anybody in this room. Because I see a picture of my self-centeredness here. But God's being patient with you, church. You're a part of His eternal plan to proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth even in Breckenridge County, even in your workplace, even in your home, on the golf course, in the fishing boat, that you would be so full of the Word of God that it just leaks out of every pore and every part of your being just... So I'd ask you this week, Would you ask the almighty God of the universe to put you in front of someone who needs to hear about Jesus Christ? Start there this morning. Just ask God. Maybe you don't really know what that's all about. Just ask God, Would you? I've been saved by the blood of Christ poured out at the cross. Would you put me in front of somebody who needs what I have this week? And then, would you give me the courage, God, to tell what I know? To tell the bitter and the sweet? To tell the whole story of how Jesus saved my soul, of the sin that was killing me, and of the Christ who saved me? You don't have to use a lot of big words, you don't have to have a thousand scriptures memorized. Just tell the story. I invite you as we come to our time of commitment this morning. Do you, you just, close your eyes and bow your head just for a moment? Nothing weird is going to happen here. I just, I want to urge you based upon this portion of God's word that we looked at this morning. I want to urge you to consider who it is that God will put before you this week. Maybe you already know, maybe it is that coworker that grates on your last nerve that you would rather jump off the building than have to spend time talking to that person, but you know they need Christ. Maybe it's your spouse. Everybody considers them a good person, but they don't know Jesus. Maybe it'll be some random stranger that you will meet at the gas pump in Subway out on the ball field as you're sitting watching your kid's game. Father, would you give us a heart for people to recognize that apart from those who proclaimed Christ who shared the gospel with us we would be dead in sin we so often forget Lord would you remind us and would you put within us this week by the power of your Holy Spirit the courage to speak the word to invest what we've ingested in the lives of those that you would put before us to tell the bitter and the sweet and to lead people to Jesus not because we are anything but because you are everything and we love you and we talk about those things that we really love we pray this in Jesus name we're going to share this song together would you stand with us we invite you to respond to the word maybe you need to come and pray at this altar for courage to share the gospel pray for a co-worker a friend that needs Christ we invite you to come in response this morning